As a life stage kind of thing, Melissa and I recently went through a complete financial analysis with a team of professionals, including an accountant, a finance guy, and a lawyer. Our goal was to gain a fresh and completely thorough understanding of how the components of our financial and retirement structures intersect as we approach the years of Social Security, Medicare, and beyond. We had some anxiety going into this process. And honestly, it had the feeling of an astonishingly intimate strip tease. I would tell you the team garnered a much clearer picture of our finances than anyone has on our current presidents, for instance. We necessarily had to provide several years of tax returns, along with every other shred of info that could be construed as having any relevance whatsoever for our planning. In the main, our situation is pretty straightforward and uncomplicated. Although we did go through the exercise of establishing our spending habits. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done a completely exhaustive analysis of all of the purposes for which your money has been deployed over the course of a year? You might have some idea, but have you done an actual explicit analysis? And I mean absolutely everything, including the cash you sequester as a secret stash, even that stuff. How do you spend that? It was sobering as well as enlightening, not as though we didn't have any idea, of course, but the focused exercise led to a heightened level of conscious objective clarity about our relationship with our money and stuff and the habits that crept in over the decades that now seem set in cement. Truth is, you know, I've always had anxiety about money. I remember reporting this during the process leading up to my ordination. It came to my mind this week as I was thinking about this. There was some question I had to answer about any matter for which I had concern as I contemplated the adventure into ordained ministry. At 26 years old, I recall mentioning that this choice was going to lock me out of substantial prosperity, notwithstanding certain high-profile clergy peddling the prosperity gospel perversion. I knew I likely was not going to inherit wealth, and I could choose a different occupation to climb a more lucrative ladder. But that wasn't how I was wired. <laughs> and then I went and married a professional singer, and my financial fate was sealed. <laughs> Melissa and I have laughed about that over the years. <laughs> well, over the years, Melissa and I have confronted some financial complications accompanied by sleepless nights over months and years. But overall, things have worked out about as well as I could have imagined under the circumstance. Funny, though, how... Anxiety still hangs around the edges. I suspect that's true for most of us, regardless of our occupations or how much we've accumulated. I'm, I'm pretty certain that far richer people than me 
have at least as much anxiety over money as I do, but likely more, actually. And, and, and here's the thing. While not wealthy particularly by American standards, Melissa and I are nevertheless at the summit of prosperity when considering the entire globe. If that's the case, then why anxiety at all? As you have heard me say over the years, I've mentioned it every once in a while when texts like these come around, of all the words ascribed to Jesus in the Gospels, one-sixth of them pertain to money and its derivatives. The only subject he speaks of more frequently is the kingdom of God, and he often puts them together. Jesus knows well that money is the most potent symbol of our secret selves, deepest loyalties and greatest, most overwhelming anxieties. His larger lesson reveals that money per se is not the problem, but our attachments to it. We are not free, we are in thraldom, and we covet the thraldom or perhaps addicted to the thraldom we have chosen. The thraldom breeds anxiety. And let me add something here, lest we're tempted to think the story we read earlier does not pertain to us due to the law of relative magnitude. This is the great rationalization. This is the little trick we play by trying to decide just how rich rich is, so that we might conclude we're not the focus of the conversation. But the facts are these, friends. 71% of the world's population lives on less than a day. Do you know the answer? $10 a day. 71% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day. Nearly two and a half billion people live on less than $2 a day. Two and a half billion of people live on less than $2 a day. By inference, what does that make most of us sitting in this room? Now, I do not presume to know how this works out in your own individual lives or faith journeys. The choice placed before the rich young man is so extreme that I find myself enumerating the reasons why, why what Jesus proposes would be entirely out of reach in 2018. I mean, how is it that any one of us could actually sell all that we have in order to follow Jesus? What about our families? What about health insurance? What about the fact that our apartments might not sell in the market anyway? And, and given my profession, how could I possibly serve Jesus without transportation, cell phone, and iPads? It is beyond the range, reach of my imagination. I expect this was true for the man in the story. Well, I've already confessed my own anxieties. But I do not know the specific words you need to hear for your particular variation on this theme. Nevertheless, we all heard very clearly the word Jesus gave the young man on the road to Jerusalem. We all heard that. We're told then what he said to the disciples afterwards. 
And let's be clear here that Jesus wasn't interested in charity in his exchange with the young man in our story. He wasn't on a fundraising campaign trying to make people give more. Although, parenthetically, if after you think about all of this, you do actually give more away, that's a very good thing. And I commend it, especially if it comes to the church. <laughs> Nevertheless, Jesus was interested in the man. The text said, did you hear it? He looked at him, and then what did it say? He loved him. And then he said what he said because he loved him. That's telling. Jesus cared about him and he loved him. And then after digesting the troubling teaching about the difficulty of a camel making it through the eye of a needle, Peter blurts out like a misunderstood child, well, you know, we've left everything behind, Jesus. We, we did good. And from the reading of the gospel, I, I have the impression the disciples did not necessarily embrace poverty as a virtue. They fully expected their day would come when they would be rewarded in very tangible ways after Jesus finally came into his full power. We might say they thought of themselves like entrepreneurs a little bit, biding their time and managing their investments of time and energy. I could see that this saying of Jesus might have brought them nearly to the brink of despair. You mean we're not on this journey for tangible reward, Jesus? That isn't what's up front? That isn't the result, the sweet result of our blood and sweat, Jesus? In the paradox of the gospel, one can only win by surrender and only gain by forfeiting everything. What on earth does that mean for you, for us? I do know that someone has to manage the money of the world. I'm not necessarily more sanguine about the morality of bankers and money managers than individual investors. I am not persuaded that government necessarily has greater virtue in its decisions than a given person. I certainly do not think prosperity is a bad thing. I'm all for prosperity. Poor people want to be prosperous. But as Prophet Amos makes very clear, which you heard first in our readings today, Often the rich make their wealth right on the backs of the poor. That's what the prophetic tradition in the Old Testament tells us over and over and over again. And we tend to ignore it, set it aside. Do we need a crystal clear example of this? Well, consider slavery in America. Wealth literally drawn from the sweat and blood of the enslaved in a Christian nation, no less. That's the most egregious form of economic and social abuse, but the pattern of those who have taken from those, from those who have taken from those who don't continues to the present day, all around the globe, all around the globe.
You know, if I had a choice in the matter, I would prefer the world's money and the power that money bestows in the hands of surrendered persons. Persons who know from whence their life came in the first place and whither it will be going at the last. Persons who locate their identity somewhere other than in their material means, whatever they have or don't have. Humble persons who have a robust spiritual confessional life, who understand their value is not found fundamentally in what they do or do not have. Persons who have a heart for God's justice. Yes. Still, we must not oversimplify the teaching. As Barbara Brown Taylor put it, the poor cannot buy the kingdom with their poverty any more than the rich can buy it with their riches. The kingdom of God is God's consummate gift. And the way you receive a gift is with open hands and an open heart and an open mind. That's how you get a gift. Yet there is a deep challenge in Jesus' confrontation. The message is to get real. Whatever one's riches, however they are defined, and they can come in many different forms, can't they? In our world, it's hard to have an identity other than a self-made identity. Your worth, your righteousness, your wealth, your power, your children, your job, your fame, whatever. There is no freedom of real living until you hand it all over, as Jesus would have it. That's what he said, hand it all over. It is the heart of generosity that he wants to teach. This heart is what he wants to give the young man on the road. His riches stand in the way, not because they are evil, but because for some reason in his case they prevent him from identification with both the cause and the gift Jesus offers. We could ask the same thing of ourselves as a spiritual project. What stands in our way of not identifying with the cause and the gift that Jesus offers? I take comfort, a lot of comfort, in the fact that Jesus was filled with love for this guy. Who knows how that love played out for him after he stepped away. I'd like to think that Jesus' love followed after him and hounded him with kind of a relentless, compassionate regard. Friends, the, uh, you know, as I think about this and hearing a teaching like this, the honest thing for us is to confess our weakness and willful ignorance. Jesus, you nailed me. You nailed me. And then to pray for, a, for wisdom and a generous heart. That is a surrendered heart. And I would tell you that that is exactly my prayer. That's what I do. I pray for a surrendered heart. I even use those words. God, help me to surrender my heart. 
And as I sit with that for a while, I begin to wonder if I actually mean it. So then we begin the process of peeling the onion. And I back up my first prayer with this one. God, help me to want to want to surrender my heart. Help me to want to want to. I think that onion gets peeled our entire lives, friends. Fear not. Authentic generosity comes with an inner awareness of our dependence upon God, the source of every good thing, including our very lives. Without that inner awareness, without a surrendered heart, we're prone to persuade ourselves and others that we have more virtue than we have, as though giving away the little bits we share can win us points somewhere in heaven, maybe. The generous heart that recognizes the shores of eternity comes only with identification with the extravagant generosity of our God in Jesus Christ, who said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's what he did. That's what he gave. That's what he surrendered. That's our model. That's the model. And we're all counted among his friends, no less. To be listening to this story now 2,000 years later is a form of his relentless compassion running after us and his love for us coming after us. It's a hard lesson. But that's because it takes us to the truthful place the heart of our anxiety, the heart of our idolatry, but then, but then wonderfully, wonderfully and mysteriously and paradoxically, it takes us to the heart of our salvation as well. Amen.